Lord, would you speak this morning for your servants are listening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So recently, my wife and I had an appointment that really neither of us wanted to go to. It was on my day off, which didn't help at all as well. And, uh, and so the meeting was in 25 minutes. Picture this. It takes about 20 minutes to get there. Josie's all ready to go. So we got five minutes to spare. She's thinking we can grab a coffee on our way out. Only problem was I was still in my pajamas. Remember, it was my day off. And I made a slate. Entirely my fault. But the way I was talking, especially the way I was thinking, you would have thought that it was everything but me that was at fault for being late. I realized I needed to call the office and warn them what they already knew, of course, which is that we were running late. And everything in me, everything in me wanted to offer excuses. There was like freezing rain that morning. So that was perfect. That was like a softball for me to just blame the weather. The traffic, therefore, was bad because everybody knows in Columbus, if there's any inclement weather, even if it's a drizzle, everybody forgets how to drive. Why was it so hard for me to own my wrongdoing fully? I'm talking full ownership. Why is it so hard to confess? I mean, it's probably the hardest thing in my life, and I'm not exaggerating, to own wrongdoing, to own something without any spin. And that's the kicker, no spin. Where you're trying to sort of share blame. And maybe even honest and appropriate shared blame. But that's where you lean. That's where you sort of hang out is in that world. And you don't own your peace ever. Why is that so hard? Why is that so hard? Why is it hard to own up? And the hypocritical part of me, if I'm completely honest, is that it drives me crazy when other people don't own up. So I don't like to do it, and yet it drives me crazy when other people do it. See, I think, I think, um, I think this is the human condition. I think this is really where we are all at. In fact, in their book called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. <laughs> Subtitle, Why We Justify Foolish Beliefs, Bad Decisions, and Hurtful Acts. The authors write, they, they write this. We want to hear, we long to hear from other people who wronged us. I screwed up. And I will do my best to ensure that it will not happen again. But I think as much as we long to hear those words, they are often impossible to say ourselves. I screwed up. Period. And stop. I screwed up. I mean, there's an entire field of study devoted to this problem. And the study outside of even the church uh, is a study of the problem of self-justification. 
And what they see over and over again is that the more evidence that we are given that we are wrong or that we acted wrongly, it is more likely, not less likely, that we will justify ourselves in the face of that evidence. Give me more evidence, I'll justify myself even more. Give me more evidence, I'll justify myself even more. And this is an amazing heart issue that all of us struggle with. And it's a huge problem. I mean, it wrecks our relationships with others. It wrecks our relationship with God. I mean, think about it. God knows our heart. Yet somehow we try to always justify our rebellions to Him. And He knows our rebellions, both outside and in attitude. He knows them all. He knows them better than we do. He knows the motivations For everything that we do fully and completely, doesn't he? And yet we spend so much time hiding. I think the image we get in Genesis chapter 1, or 3 rather, is the fig leaf. We, We put the fig leaf over our shame and we pretend that it's clothing. I mean, I get little hints of what that must look like for God as a parent. Just little hints. I I see clear wrongdoing, okay? (laughs) I see clear, unambiguous wrongdoing. And yet my kids can dig and dig and dig and dig into self-justification. And that is me before God, my Father. I dig deeper and deeper and deeper and I do it all the time and I wonder if you can relate I mean and the result is not good is it if you think about it it's a life of shallow obedience to God it really is a life of no relationship to God that is a terrible way to relate to God is it not we dread him instead of delight in him we have no intimacy with him and therefore no freedom and we're living in deception we're deceiving ourselves We think we're deceiving God. Self-justification is a problem. And so what can we do? Well, I think the path forward is inscribed for us in chapters 9 and 10 in Nehemiah. That's no exaggeration. Chapters 9 and 10 in Nehemiah is for us in the Bible the longest prayer recorded. And it's striking to me that if you were to say, okay, that's significant, the longest prayer recorded in the Bible, I wonder what they're praying about. It's striking that what they're praying about is confession. In fact, we see two things in chapters 9 and 10. We see confession in chapter 9, and we see commitment in chapter 10. And the thing is, that's the order of the Christian life. Always is and always will be. Confession... We're going to look into that and what flows out of that and what I would argue the freedom of confession and the assurance of forgiveness that fuels appropriate commitment to God, a real relationship to our Lord. See, confession and commitment is another way of saying this big word that you see in the Bible and that we throw around, but maybe we don't understand very well. It's the R word. Do you know what it is? Repentance. I mean, repentance has two sides. It's confession and commitment. Confession and commitment. And so what I would like to argue from Nehemiah 9 and 10 is that the most important factor in renewal, both personally and as a community, is repentance. 
Friends, repentance is the way to renewal. And so let's unpack repentance as a way of renewal. Remember, repentance has two ingredients, confession and commitment. So we'll start with confession. We'll start with confession. So follow along as I read. This is verses 1 through 4. It says this. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, of the, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up and uh, in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. That's three hours quarter of the day and then for another quarter of the day that's another three hours uh, they made confession and worship the lord their god and so that's a six hour worship service so praise god that we're not there but that's what that's what they were doing a six hour worship service three of which was a reading of god's word and three of which was a confessing on the basis of that reading of god's word and it has intriguingly the other word worship so they were able to confess and worship at the same time, which immediately, I think, hints at something. <laughs> that the way to worship, the way to renewal, is indeed confession. But what's interesting is, oh, here we see if we continue reading in verse 4, we hear the names of the Levites stood next to the reading of the word. Uh, we hear the names in verse 5 again. And this is what they say, the Levites. They say, stand up. And bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. And here begins the longest prayer recorded in Scripture. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And so again, in this worship service, a six-hour worship service, they're simply reading the Word. But what we see about their confession upon the reading of the Word is two things, really. We see a confession of God's faithfulness or his goodness or his greatness or his holiness. Really a confession, a positive confession of who God is. And then we also see immediately after that a confession of sin. You can see it as a two-pronged confession. A confession of God's faithfulness and a confession of God of our, God's people's, faithlessness. And this is the pattern of this prayer. And friends, it's the pattern of the Christian life. We confess God's character, and then we confess our character. And they go hand in hand, and they're married. And in fact, you can tell they were reading the Bible before they were confessing because of the content of their prayer. We're going to kind of walk through this prayer, and what you'll notice is that this prayer is a story. It's their story. And they start with the creation of everything. And then they kind of walk chapter by chapter, six chapters total, to their present day situation. And what they're noticing as they're praying is that in every season of God's activity throughout all of redemptive history, there has been two constant things. God's faithfulness and humankind's faithlessness. That's how they read their Bibles. And that's how we too should read our Bibles. I think some of us, we open the Bibles and we look for a self-help to-do list. And these folks are, are helping all of us see, no, 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 no. When you read the Bible, you're seeing two things. God's faithfulness and our faithlessness. And you see those two things on display. 
over and over and over and over again. So let's take our cue from this ancient community and let's walk through this prayer together and let's see those two confessions spinning around like a motor, like those magnetic motors that you made when you were a kid. First, they recount God's creation in verses 5 and 6. They say, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all its honors. So they're confessing that He is creator, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Notice two confessions God is creator, we are created. We are completely dependent upon Him. That's the most foundational reality that we need to come to grips with. There is a creator-creation distinction. There's a hard line between those two things. And you know what? We are on the other side of the line. Our breath is from Him. We sang and John led us in worship this morning that, that, that even the breath that we have in worship is from Him. There's the two-pronged confession. And then, after that, they secondly recount God's call to Abraham in verses 7 and 8. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham. You can follow along. And brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name of Abraham. And this is recalling the founding of Israel. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise. Why? Because you are righteous. So notice the two confessions in this prayer. God is the caller. We are the called. I mean, Abram was, was, was just out there in Ur. And God just out of nowhere calls him. Sometimes we have to wake up our kids to go on a journey, like we're catching an early plane or something like that. And they are just dead asleep. Do you know what I mean? And you wake them up and it is just kind of like a call from nowhere. Or perhaps you have been on that side. Someone's waking you up. Maybe it was your alarm this morning. It's like a call from nowhere. That is the church. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and yet God called you to life and called you into his presence. And friends, the church itself comes from the word ecclesia, meaning called ones. That's who we are. That's who we are. We are called. That's why we begin our worship with a call to worship. God is calling you. He's waking you up and he's saying, come into my presence. Two confessions. God is a caller. We are the called. And they continue. Uh, Third, they recount God's salvation at the Exodus. So verses 9 through 11. And you saw the affliction of the fathers of our fathers in Egypt, heard their cry at the Red Sea, performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, all his servants and the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. Now notice, again, two confessions. God is the rescuer. God's people are the rescued. Fourth, they recount the wilderness wanderings. And so this is a bigger chunk of the prayer, verses 12 through 21. We'll read a lot of it, maybe not all of it. By the pillar, starting in verse 12, of cloud, you led them in the day. And by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way to which they should go. 
And you came down on Mount Sinai. Listen, God came down and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you, God, made known to them your holy Sabbath, commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. And you gave them bread. You made a table for them uh, from heaven for their hunger, brought water so that he's providing for them uh, out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But here's the second prong confession. They and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck. They refused to obey. We're not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. If you're going to underline your Bible, this is a good place to do it. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. I mean, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, an idol, a false God, and said, this is God who rescued us. Even when they did that. What does verse 19 say? In your great mercies, you did not forsake them. That's amazing. That is amazing. And you were with them. So that verse 21 says, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. And they lacked nothing. Notice again, two confessions in this prayer. God is steadfast. Verse 17, we are stiff-necked. Verse 16. Fifth chapter of God's story, they recount the promised land experience. So this would be verses 22 through 31. It says this, it says, And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. And so they took possession of the land. And they talk about this possession as you follow through uh, the verses. So that, uh, so that, at the end of verse 25, you see, you see this. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in what? In your great goodness. Nevertheless, verse 26, they were disobedient, rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn your back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. And therefore, you gave them into the hands of their enemies uh, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you. And then after they cried out to you, you heard them in heaven, and according to your mercy, again, you gave them saviors or uh, judges. And so if you're following along, this is the time of the judges in your Old Testament. Uh, so God gave them saviors or judges who saved them from the hand of their enemies. So God was merciful, even though they were rebellious, even in the promised land. And yet the saviors came and we see in verse 28 and 29 that they continued to act presumptuously and did not obey. Verse 30, many years you bore with them, warned them by your spirit, yet they would not give ear. And so then God gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. And here's again that glorious, that glorious word, nevertheless. I told you to underline a word. You could probably circle a word now. Every time you see nevertheless, you're going to see a display of God's mercy and grace. It says, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of themselves or forsake them. 
Why? For you are gracious and merciful. So the confessions by now are hard to miss. God gives us his heart and we give him our stubborn shoulder. Verse 29. And so then you might think, well, they're confessing things that they didn't do. This all happened in the past for them. Well, they fast forward to their present day. In verse 32, the prayer continues. It says, Now therefore our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day, that's where they're living, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. I want you to notice as I finish this prayer out, I want you to notice the lack of self-justification that's happening in this prayer. Remember earlier when I said that everything in me wants to see all that's going wrong outside of me so that I could probably share the blame a little bit with some other folks? Notice the complete absence of that in this prayer. It's actually striking. They have so much that they could point to. They have so much injustice that they have experienced in their own life. But watch what they say. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, verse 35, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Two confessions here. God is faithful. We acted faithlessly. So the first movement in repentance, friends, is confession. Confess two things. God's faithfulness and our faithlessness. That's the first move. Our family, I'll let you in on a little secret. We love eating at Dewey's Pizza. If you want to meet us and hang out, just go to Dewey's on any given weekday night, and you might see us there. It's a good chance you'll see us there. Or ask the people who are working there. That family of five that sort of takes over, they'll know who you're talking about. My kids love it especially. And in fact, they have a little tradition as they walk in. I don't know if you've been to the Grandview Deweys. I know there's a couple across the city. But in the Grandview Deweys, as you walk in, there's a tall ledge next to the stairs toward the door. It's a cement ledge about a little bit higher or maybe hip high for me. And what my kids love to do is they love to walk on that ledge, both down and up, depending on if we're going in or out. And it would be a hard fall, okay? Especially for our littlest, Lewis, who loves, loves to take that on every single time. I mean, when we say we're going to do is I think that's what he thinks of, actually, is that ledge. Now, I hold his hand, but let me just say, he is doing everything in his power to let go of me. Because he wants to be on that ledge by himself. And there'll be a day where I let him, and I have actually a few times. But here's the reality. When he's going crazy and he wants to be on that ledge by himself, I am holding his hand a lot harder than he is holding mine. In fact, I can, hear, I can feel his hand loosening and wiggling out. And when that happens, what do I do? I sort of tighten my grip. I will never let go. 
And friends, that is exactly what they are praying in the Scriptures. They are saying, Father, we have been wiggling out in every conceivable way, and yet you are still gripping our hand tight. That is really the story of the Bible in four words. God never lets go. Repentance is the way to renewal. And renewal and repentance, I mean, happens and begins with confession. God, I am wiggling out of your hand in this way, in that way, in this way, in that way. And yet, or that word, nevertheless, you grip me tighter. That's where renewal begins. That's where renewal begins. It begins with confession. And what I want you all to experience is the freedom of confession. Because living life in a self-justifying world uh, to God and to others is simply exhausting. You cannot maintain it. It's hard to manage. It kills you. Self-justification is like running up a sand dune. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever ran up a sand dune before? Anybody? No? Okay. It is terrible, okay? So we were at Sleeping Bear Dunes when I was in high school. We thought it would be cool to kind of ski down with our feet, the sand dune. And we get all the way down to the bottom, and we're watching the sunset. It's this glorious thing. And we're like, all right, let's go up. So we start running up the sand dune. And with every stroke, with every, uh, with every movement, with every step, we seem to go back further <laughs> than we went up. It was this horrible horrible experience so that the sun was falling and then it was dark and then it was pitch black and then we're about halfway up the sand dune we're like what are we doing we're exhausted and we can't go up it and that is what a life of self-justification feels like the harder you dig in the more you slide back and i'm talking your relationship with your Spouse, I'm talking your relationship with your friends. I'm talking your relationship with your children. I'm talking your relationship with your parents. I'm talking your relationship to God. The more you dig in, the more you slide back. And I want you to experience in replacement of that, the glorious freedom of confession. But as I said, it's impossible. It really is humanly impossible to live a life of honesty. Unless you have divine security. That's not an exaggeration. I believe that to the bottom of my heart. You will not experience renewal. You will not engage in the first step of repentance, which is confession, unless you have divine security. It is too much to ask a mere mortal to be completely open and vulnerable. Unless you have divine security. I mean, the Israelites in the passage we're just encountering this morning, they had tasted divine security. You can feel it in their prayer. And, and if you were with us last week, you know that they celebrated the Feast of Booths just a couple days ago before this prayer. And the Feast of Booths, if you don't know, the Feast of Booths is an opportunity where God's people remembered God's faithfulness in the wilderness travel. 
how he was near them by fire and cloud, how he was near them, how he was committed to them. And so they had just celebrated their divine security. And shortly after this, shortly after this, they will celebrate the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where a lamb takes on all of their sin. Where a lamb is a substitute for them. And in that process, they understood that there was divine security. Guys, how much more security do we have in light of Jesus? Kathleen Nielsen, she says this, she says, They could confess boldly, and I'm paraphrasing, because of that lamb. But they didn't know his name. We do. His name is Jesus. The Lamb of God. Who took away your sins. Who took on your sins. What that means, in plain language, is that... You can be honest at the cross because you have divine security. Jesus took on all of your wrongdoing, past, present, and future. He took on all of your backward motivations, past, present, and future. At the cross, he forgave you. At the cross, he extended his welcome to you. At the cross, there is no condemnation. And so at the cross, we can repent freely and boldly. We have divine security there. So you want renewal, make repentance a way of life. I want to show you something. This is a chart that has been useful to me over the years. The cross chart. The cross chart shows a few things. Time going that way. A conversion moment. And then two splitting paths. On the bottom it says growing awareness of my flesh and sinfulness. And at the top it says growing awareness of God's holiness. And this is a picture of what the Christian life really is. This is a picture of a lifestyle of repentance. Because two things are at play. At any given moment of your life. Number one, an awareness of God and who He is, His holiness, what He requires, but also His faithfulness. And on the other hand, a growing awareness of just our brokenness, frankly. And we can admit and go deeper and deeper into our self-justifications and our wrongdoing. We can go there, okay? I'm going to point. We can actually go there (laughs) because the cross. In fact, the deeper you go in your confession of sin, the bigger the cross becomes, doesn't it? And that is a lifestyle of repentance. And that is a lifestyle of freedom. Worship grows. Self-justification dies when we live a life of repentance. Want an alternative? Want an alternative to, uh, to this? I'll, I'll tell you the alternative. It's religion or self-help. Where, 
where, where we sort of bring about or try to bring about renewal on our own efforts. And what happens is usually two things. Pride or despair. Because when you are trying to renew yourself through self-help, whether it be a religious self-help or a secular self-help, when you're trying to do that, there will be a season of success. And in that season of success, you will be proud. And you will share with everybody the help that you've received from doing X and from doing Y and from doing Z. But there will be a season when you fail. And in that season, the despair will be deep. It will be so deep. And they will lack the divine security that we need. And so what we have in our culture now, and even in our churches, is very proud people and very, very despairing people. But what if we understood that we were secure at the cross? And we would live with freedom. We would live with freedom. In fact, I think from that would flow a beautiful obedience, a costly commitment. And so that's why... We see that confession often leads to commitment. And we don't have the time to really explore the ins and outs of chapter 10, but that's essentially what happens. In chapter 10, we see starting at the final verse of chapter 9, because of all this, we made a firm covenant in writing. Isn't that amazing? Because of the brutal honesty that we had before God, we now feel compelled, strangely, to commit ourselves to God and His ways. In other words, God is now our friend, and His word to us is life. Isn't that amazing? So amazing. So confession always leads to commitment. And we see it unfold. The obligations of the covenant and their commitment towards it unfold in chapter 10. Okay, so I did end up calling that office that we were laid at. Uh, I did end up calling them. And God, I think, did a miracle in my life. I had some pressure to you because Josie was sitting next to me. But I didn't blame anyone or anything to soften the blow to my pride. The cross destroys your pride already. So I simply said, and you simply can say, it's my fault. It's my fault. We're late. And you know what it did to me? Just speaking personally, I drove more relaxed and free. Ownership of your sin, divine security in Jesus equals freedom. And that is God's offer to you this morning. You can stop the exhausting effort of self-justification. You can say, I screwed up and God forgives you. And when each of us does that, I think, look out. Renewal will start happening. Lord, we ask that you would compel us your cross. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Always is. We want to move from a willful 
obedience where we are simply obeying in order to get stuff from you or to prove ourselves to you or to prove ourselves to others. We want to move from this sort of willful self-help religion that masquerades as Christianity to a willing obedience where you are our Lord and you are our love. And we know that can only happen through repentance. It's your kindness that leads us there. It's your grace. It's your nevertheless love. We rest in that this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.